Like, it is a niche thing, like, talking to people from Elwood is a very niche market. Um, but it's also, like, I hope it's not, because, like, the conversations I'm trying to have are, like, conversations about how to be, like, a better person. Like, how are, how is this person making choices and going about life in order to be happier and healthier and smarter? And and I think, I don't think that's a niche concern. Um so yeah, and I, it, yeah, it's, it's really fun, um, and so I'm so cl- happy Clark is here to talk to me. Clark Moser, we're doing Moser now, right? What do you mean? Well, it was Moser all growing up. Oh, uh, it depends on who you ask. Yeah, his family. But you say Moser now. I say Moser. Yeah. You didn't always. No. No. Um, so we. So I feel like every time I have someone from childhood that on here, which is a lot of the time, um, I say at the beginning, "This is my oldest friend in the world," <laughs> and I said it like I said it with Dan, I said it with Darian, I think I said it with Zach, which is totally not true. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so it's this funny of like, but I think in many significant ways it is true with you it's probably like, close in terms of i think in terms of consistency like right. dan and i were uh consistently good friends we had like we were really good friends in third grade and eighth grade and you know and like we had our years right and then we've since gotten back to it um but you and i have, have this kind of like steadiness that i don't think i have in many other relationships. I know 
And so we're, we're staying on not too personal. We're not going to get too personal. But, um, but I, I just wanted to start off with that because I think it's really funny. So no, I don't mind talking about stuff like that. Mm, yeah, so let's, let's just let's be forthright with it. What, uh, you know, you're, I get it. You're a doctor. You're also just, your personality is uh, a little more reserved. Mm-hmm. You were. What were you waiting on me to say? <laughs> you had this look like. What, was, what word is he gonna say? I uh, knew. I knew what you were getting at, but I was waiting to see which word you chose. Which word I chose? Yeah. Uh, you're a little, you know, uptight. <laughs> 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 um, no. Um, so I, I. So I get it. Um, but yeah, because you're. You're not on. Are you on any social? You're not on any social media. No. Um, one of the, probably one of the last, Sarah, are you on social media? Okay. Um, and then, well, and then we're a really funny contrast because I'm like, I put everything on, like, not everything online, but like the significant things about like my mental health is like, I'm blasting that out there, I think with a purpose and, but so it's just interesting contrast. Um, what, what's behind your decision not to be on social media and not be out there like that i don't know i was on facebook until about five years ago yeah that's uh, and then i i got off just because i felt like i spent a lot of time on it like seeing things but not necessarily connecting with people and yes. spent a lot of time doing it but not it ended up the... like if i thought like over the last year like how much of that time was you know meaningful to my life very little of it was meaningful yeah, that's very fair. Um, I like, I like that. Uh, and then, do you also think it has something to do with as you've gotten further into being a doctor, like um, keeping your privacy in that way, like a, a kind of a professionality yeah. aspect to I it? Yeah, I think I think there is a there is certainly a part of that that you know. Yeah, you're um, an extremely minor yet still public person right like you can sure you can google things about me professionally and you know my name pops up yes uh and uh uh i would prefer like you know for my name to pop up associated with like my actual profession when that's what people are looking for as opposed to my facebook page yeah well i always thought it was weird when you saw like i always thought it'd be like if i were a parent and i saw like my my kid's second grade teacher like at new year's with like a beer right like obviously they're allowed to have a beer but like, there's still just like a, a disconnect there. That mm-hmm. and so it's probably similar. Where like, if I'm going to you to for my treatment or whatever, like, yeah, it would be kind of weird to see like you in the speedo on on, <laughs> on the beach in Bulgaria. You know, yeah. like, um, like okay, <laughs> what what do I do with that information? <laughs> you know, um, we haven't gone there yet. So that's like some foretelling on your part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, well, well, see. This episode is going to come out before Sarah's, and then, and then people are going to be like, whoa. Um, but yeah, you know, just me making magic. Um, so you are a neurologist, correct? Right? Mm-hmm. You went to med school, and I'm, I'm laying this all out. Obviously, I know all this. <laughs> Obviously, you know all this. Um, I'm laying this out because one of the reasons I wanted to have you on, and the reason I was like, yeah professional more professional talk is because i just think it's really what it's really inspiring uh what you do and also like i know there are people who listen to this who are or know people who are from here that are like oh i'd like to be a doctor but i have no idea how to become like to become a doctor or like i have no idea what what you know specialties are all these different things and stuff that i learned just from uh, being overly curious and talking to you on the phone regularly. Um, so what what is the the definition of a neurologist? Like what um, I always we had the conversation recently, like neuroscience versus neurologist versus like so I think maybe we talked about psychiatrists. You know, like there's all the brain do- brain doctors, neurologists. Can you kind of put that into a box for us? Sure. Yeah. So, uh, a neurologist is uh, uh, a medical doctor who helps people deal with disorders of their 
um, nervous and, and muscular system. So not necessarily the, the brain just itself, but also spinal cord and then the nerves and the muscles after they left the brain. That's actually like my area of subspecialty is the peripheral nerves and muscles after they left the spinal cord and go to the muscles. Um, okay. Uh, so, uh, so disorders that involve those uh, anatomical areas but um, also do not require surgery. That's one of the other like common misconceptions is that- You're not um, a neurosurgeon. We're not a neurosurgeon. So I don't perform any surgery. Um, so like if you have a tumor in your brain, you go to a neurosurgeon to get it cut out, um, as opposed to a neurologist who helps people with things like migraines and seizures and um, ALS and things like that that don't require surgery. So migraines and seizures and ALS, is that like the, the most common things you see? Uh, migraines is probably by far and away the, the most common thing all neurologists combined together see, but it's hard yeah. to say for each individual neurologist because uh-huh. within the field of neurology, you know, over the last several decades, like people get more and more subspecialized in exactly what types of disorders they, they get really good at seeing and, and have a lot of expertise in. Yeah. So for someone, if, if I were someone like in Elwood, I would probably have to go to Indy to see like a neurologist. Or do you, mm-hmm. does, would Anderson? I think Anderson might have one would or have, two. I know Muncie has, Muncie, Muncie has one or two. Yeah. Um, so, so it's, so you're not doing like, as far as day-to-day activities, you're not doing like the, like the TV doctor vibe where you're running around and it's, yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? Okay. So here's the thing. Most of my knowledge, you know, this is from Grey's Anatomy and you. Um, which is a very competing interest in, uh, levels of scandal. Um, very different levels of scandal. Uh, no, I'm just, I'm, I always just want to imagine what your day-to-day life is like as, as a neurologist. Cause you're, so what I'm saying is like, you're not working like 30 hour shifts, like often, like that's not your regular Correct. Not thing. often. You're, you're like a more like a nine to fiver. Yeah. So most pa- most uh, sorry most neurologists who work in the U.S. Um, work on an outpatient basis. So they see patients in the clinic who are scheduled, you know, eight yep. to five type of thing. Yep. Um, so most of my schedule is is that way. Um, and then about eight to ten weeks per year, um, I do I do inpatient medicine where I see patients who are admitted to the hospital. And so for that period, I'll do a week at a time where I work. Um, uh, mostly nonstop. I'll have like 12 hour off shifts, um, about twice per week. Okay. Uh, but the rest of the week I'm essentially like on for patients who are admitted to the hospital and have a neurologic, uh, disease or symptom okay. that they need help managing with. So there's like a whole team of neurologists who take their chunks of weeks. Correct. And so anytime I walk into this particular hospital, there will be a neurologist there. Most yeah, likely. and not not all hospitals have neurologists who work that way. Yes. Like for example, you know, up here at um, Mercy, do they still call it Mercy? I'm not sure. Saint Vincent. Saint Vincent Mercy. Yep. Yeah. Um, like they don't have a they don't have an in-house neurologist at all. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, now uh, it's a, they got bought by Ascension. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yes. Um, yeah, they do not like me up there. Um, <laughs> Um, I'm sure they're happy to have you there, Tyler. Uh, I don't know. Um, I don't blame them. Uh, so, I guess, kind of looking back, um, I was thinking as we, I was thinking about this conversation, uh, kind of to the origins, you know. And you're you're from a family of optometrists. Uh, you and your brother are the only two non-optometrists in the family, right? Correct. Was there any pressure, or was there any interest ever in? The eyes? Oh yeah, I thought. Um, uh, well, before I went to college, I didn't want to do that at all. I wanted to do something totally different, and so I went to an engineering school. Yep. Um, but then while I was there, several of my siblings were like switching back to go into healthcare. Um, my brother and my my sister, or at least my brother was talking about it, but he didn't end up doing it. But yeah. Um, uh, so I figured I might do the same, and so I applied to medical school. But once I was in medical school, I, I really thought I would end up being an ophthalmologist, so an eye doctor, but, um, you know, doing surgery of the yeah, eye. That's, yeah, eye surgery, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, but uh, I, I really didn't, number one, I really didn't like that. And number two, when it comes to medical school and choosing a specialty, you know, there's different levels of competitiveness. And um, 
there's different reasons that different subspecialties or sorry, different specialties um, are particularly competitive. Okay. And uh, uh, ophthalmology is one of the most competitive ones. So it was a combination of I didn't really enjoy it, and also it was extremely competitive, and I ended up liking neurology a lot more instead. So I just stuck with neurology. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That I remember. You thought we was pre- we were pretty young when you were like doctor track right when you were like i'm doing i'm gonna do the doctor thing uh, we were like early high school right no no i, I didn't decide until after, actually um like my sophomore year of college but was when i switched my major yeah but i thought there was because i have this well here re, see if you can help me par- parse out this memory i remember you having like seeing like blood having a nosebleed or something and like having a fainting spell and being worried that you were do you remember this at all yeah i remember when i gave blood i passed out you gave blood and you passed out and you were worried that it was going to keep you i thought you were worried it was going to keep you from like med school no i think you were just projecting (laughs) (laughs) did you go into neurology or psychiatry (laughs) um (laughs) um no uh okay i'm projecting okay Mark off fainting. I don't know. It could totally be true. Maybe I blacked it out. I thought you were like, I, in my head, this is the story I made up, is you had a nosebleed, saw your blood, fainted, and then freaked out because you're like, oh, if I faint at the sight of blood, I can't go into medicine. No. Well, first of all, I never had a nosebleed. I passed out when I gave blood. Okay. But I never had a nosebleed. Zach was the one with all the nosebleeds after he ate uh, all the hot sauces at Taco Bell. (laughs) Yeah, he ate like he 10 hot sauce nose. packets he, the other like day in a we row, were, and then his nose just started bleeding and talk about. The other day he had a nosebleed, he, he was, we were playing disc golf and he throws, and his nose just like <laughs> And I was like, what happened? He's like, it's winter time. <laughs> I was like, okay. Um, yeah, so bodies are weird. Yeah. Um, okay, so I was wrong about that. So you, were, so you went to Rose Holman yeah. for engineering, right? Correct. So you didn't go for like... Some folks go for, like, pre-med. Right. No, I went... I originally was um, uh, uh, doing an... Uh, on the track to become an aerospace engineer. Like, I thought I wanted to work for NASA. That's so cool. It, it would have been. <laughs> it would have been amazing. Uh, yeah, it would have been really cool. I, I didn't do that. Uh, but thank you for having... For, for thinking my dream was that cool. That would have been way cooler. Yeah. Um, this, this interview would be taking place in outer space. Um, no... Uh, so what's the what's the deal with pre med? Is that do a lot of people do pre med? Like a lot of the doctors you know, or people you're in med school with, did you find that all a lot of them were pre med, or was it kind of mixed? Were a lot of them like you, where they were studying something else scientific? Um, no, probably at least half of them had like a, a, a highly. I mean, I'm, in most schools, pre med is not like a major. Pre med is kind of like. Uh, a track that you're on to make sure that you get your prerequisites that you have to apply to medical schools. But actually, sure. um, you could do like biology di- different, or yeah, something. Yeah, so you, you could actually do anything um, uh, as long as you have done the prerequisite classes. What your major is is irrelevant, and in a lot of ways, the um, how opposite you are from traditional paths makes it more likely that you'll get accepted to medical school. Like for people who um, are like art majors uh-huh. who go back and get the prerequisites to go to medical school. Like yeah. for example, you know, they have to take like chemistry and organic chemistry and all this other stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, they're actually like the most likely to be accepted into medical school wow. because it's shown that number one, you're well-rounded and, you know, um, diversity in lots of forms is now something that, uh, you know, medical schools and residencies and other mm. people really um, highly value. Yeah. And then also it shows that you have a, a, a high commitment to what you're doing because it wasn't just like the easiest path. Like it's not like you did a biology degree and like yeah. your choices now are to either, you know, do a PhD or an MD. You yeah. could you could do anything. Uh, uh, you know, if you got like an art degree or like an engineering degree is also a pretty highly like uh, uh, accepted degree to get into medical school. Yeah. Well, yeah. And is it kind of too like... You're, you've proven that you're smart, but you're also moldable. You're not, like, already starting to fit into a mold of, like, I am a doctor. Right. You're like, yeah, it's like I adding, want to be a doctor. Right. It's adding to the diversity portfolio of doctors out in the world and also of the doctors within a particular medical school class. Yeah. I remember we had a conversation kind of about that, about this chi- kind of changing landscape of 
doctor doctorhood <laughs> um where you had mentioned to me like how it used to be before technology advanced and before uh society advanced in certain ways that they're like doctors were like the people who could memorize really well could remember all the symptoms and all the d- diseases and all that versus now there's a lot more emphasis on like resourcefulness and uh bedside manner and that stuff is that is that still something that like you see for sure yes all of those things are true yeah yeah because yeah, you know if you think about it if you were like you know a doctor in 1980 and you don't have access to the internet or anything like if you don't know something off the top of your head you have to like walk to the library find a book, look up whatever you want to look up in the index, yeah. right? Like that's like a 30 to 45 minute project, yeah. depending on how far you away are, how far away you are from that book. Um, uh, now you have like all of these answers at the touch of your fingertips, assuming that you know how to use them. Yes. Um, and also that you know how to uh, interpret different evidence quickly um, and, um, and, and use good judgment by it. And so yeah, there's, as now, as opposed to then, there was a lot more emphasis on other aspects in, in addition to just like, you know, how much medical knowledge can you memorize? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's not like the, it's not necessarily like, not that y'all aren't smart, but like, it's not like the Brainiac wins kind of vibe. Correct. It's, there's other, uh, yeah, and I, I, yeah, I think, I think that's great. I think, well, kind of like what we were talking about, diversifying the field is like it's giving more people the opportunity that wouldn't necessarily have been there. Here's a question. Do you think do you think in 1980 you would have made it? Mm-hmm. Maybe not. Yeah, yeah, it would have been tough. Because you're like because... a smart guy, but like, are you're not like, I think of some of those people, I'm not going to name them, but like we know that we went to school with. Mm-hmm. Uh, that like, that like, uh, we're, we're super smart, but had no people skills, you <laughs> okay. know? I love how you think I know what you were mouthing. <laughs> I'm, I mouthed the name that I thought. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Um, so, but yeah, this is a joy moment right here. And, uh, but yeah, yeah, I just, I just wonder. Yeah. Like what I made it. Yeah. No, uh, it would have been it would have been much closer um, yeah. than what it was when I applied now. In part, also because like um, the like, so for a lot of purposes of medical testing, you know, even though the field is expanding towards this idea that you don't have to have everything memorized, um, and it's more about resourcefulness and people skills, like you mentioned. Yeah. Um, uh, some of the testing is still highly skewed that way. Mm-hmm. Um, of course. And uh, because because they're tests and that's how they work. Yeah. Um, and they still want you to know that stuff. <laughs> yeah. To, 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 to an extent. Or have been uh, have To been a certain exposed. depth. Yeah. Need to, to both be exposed, exposed. And, yeah. and to a certain depth. Like there are certain things you like you have to know offhand because you might have to make split second decisions, right? Yeah. And you can't look up every little thing. Yes. Um, uh, but I guess my point is, is um, you know, like in my undergrad training in engineering school, which I don't think has changed that much since 1980. It's really not about what you know. In fact, they would even teach us, like, don't memorize this. Don't memorize a formula. It's all about application of what you, of, of, of strategies that you know. Um, uh, it's like polar opposite of old-time medical school um, teaching and testing about memorizing facts and, and getting tested on them. I see. So I, I think I would have struggled. <laughs> yeah, but you didn't, and you went to and you went to med school. I mean, you might have struggled, but you didn't. You made it. <laughs> I, I I know you had moments. I I made it. Yeah. Um. So you went to IU for med school Correct. through the Muncie campus Is that for correct? the first two years. For the first two years. Mm-hmm. Um. But we went. To, but it was IU med school, right? Yeah. Um. Let's like shuffle back to like applying. Right, so you're like you went straight from undergrad. You didn't take any time off, right? No, I didn't take any. You time went off. straight. Yeah. What was what? The, I remember that being a little stressful. That apply, application process, right, and all the schools and all the. Yeah, yeah. You know, you apply to as many schools as you think you can or desire to, and you you hope that one of them um, um, accepts you. Uh, and um, but you a lot of people apply to like a dozen. Right? Oh, or, or way more. Yeah, yeah. 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 So it's, it's not like we're like undergrad, I applied to like two places, you know? Or yeah. 
Yeah, you... Um, uh, and I had and, a pretty good idea, you know. Right, and it also depends a little bit on like how, you know, how good of an applicant you think you are and how likely you are to be accepted and, yep. and those types of things. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, what? Who was the first person you told when you got accepted? Oh. I don't remember. Probably the people I lived with. Probably Cody Van Busker. Probably Cody Van Busker. Yeah. Who will be on the podcast in spring. <laughs> yeah. Um, stay tuned. <laughs> stay tuned. Um, yeah. And then, so, how, so how'd that process, if I remember right, you got into a few? No. No, no. you just got an IU? I got in, well, I, I actually, I applied to seven schools and, um, I only got interviews at two, uh-huh. which, uh, like I, you know, I, I, uh, similar to you, I, I grew up in Indiana and, and didn't move around a lot. And the idea that I would move like far away was, seemed really unlikely and, and scary. And so I really only applied to like, uh, Indiana surrounding states and then a few like, kind of like quote unquote reach schools, one of which was Duke. And uh, so yeah. the, on, the only places I got interviews at were actually Indiana and Duke, but I was actually already accepted at Indiana before I could go to Duke. I was like, well, I'm not like. I'm already accepting it. I'm just going to stay in Indiana. So I actually didn't do my interview at Duke. Oh. Um, and just... Uh, you ever play that one out in your head? No, because they're... Um, the things I had read at that time, I'm sure their school has changed a lot by now because that was 10 years ago. But um, the things I had read a lot about their this the structure of their medical school and their medical students' experiences back then was that um, it was heavily research-based um, okay. and not really kind of what I wanted to do with my life. You wanted to do like the actual practice of medicine, right? Yeah, yeah. I wanted to. I wanted to be what you call a clinician as opposed to a researcher. Yep. Yeah. Um, so, what? Looking back on med school, what were some of the like the most surprising or like hardest parts of med school? Like we know, like some of it, like memorizing all the bones or whatever, is going to be hard, right? Yeah. Like what well, we not, but like, were there was there anything that you remember? Like, I don't know, like. I remember the first time you called me and you had seen a cadaver. Like, I remember that oh, really? conversation. I don't remember that conversation. But uh, I, yeah, yeah, I'm not it's, really it's going to repeat weird. that conversation. It's kind of weird. Yeah. Because uh, <laughs> I was also asking weird questions. But, uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, uh, sorry, what was the question? Oh, just thinking about, like, surprising your hard parts that came up. Like, moments that came up oh, in, yeah. gra- or in med school that... That you had to kind of push through. Yeah, you know, certain um, certain subject matters are 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 difficult, and you always have this pressure to you know um, perform and do as well. Like like everything is is a competition to a degree. Probably not uh-huh. as much as I've heard, like as in law school, where like literally like you know, it's it's a zero. What do they call it? Like a zero sum game. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so someone, I, I someone is going to be left out or lose or right. Yeah. And 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 I wouldn't describe medical school as as, as that way um, exactly. I would say it's it's significantly more collaborative. But um, uh, yeah, there were certainly like some subject matters. In fact, neurology, like uh, my very first like neuroanatomy class, like I failed one of my first exams. Oh really? Uh, really? Yeah. Uh, Did you uh, have the was, inkling that you that that's something you were interested in yet, or is that something you got during that kind of course? Um, I actually got it a little bit later. Um, uh, the very first course I took in that was it was neuroanatomy. So you know, I'm like I'm in a classroom all day. I'm not like seeing patients at all. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm just learning like you know different neural pathways and trying to memorize them and memorize like yeah. test questions and that type of thing. Um, and and part of it appealed to me, and part of it I also found extremely challenging. Um, and so I, I, I didn't do very well in the, the first test. Um, and, uh, eventually, um, you know, when I started like seeing patients and things like that later in your medical school career, um, I found that that was, that was something that I was, I was much more interested in and had more of an aptitude for than, you know, the initial testing kind of show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. So, so that. Well, yeah, like, obviously, because that became your specialty. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so at what point in the whole process do you get your specialty? Or do you d- pick your specialty? Like, it, it's not, it's an in-med, like, it's in-med school at the end? Yeah, so, um, so during medical school, they, they train you to be kind of um, 
reasonably well-versed in kind of all different medical specialties, whether it's primary care surgery, you get exposure to all these different things. Yes. Um, and uh, about halfway through your third year, you have to start kind of thinking about how you're going to commit to a residency program because residency programs, which is the next step in training after medical school, are specialty specific. Yep. So you apply like to a neurology or a general surgery or a primary care or an OBGYN yep. residency. Yeah. Um, and that is ultimately assuming you don't just go back and do an additional residency later, which very rarely people choose to do. Um, that is like the type of doctor that you are going to be yes. when you like grow up and have a real job. So it's a big choice. So yeah, it's a pretty big choice, and it comes uh, uh, like in the latter half of your third year out of four years of medical school. Yeah. So to it. So, yeah, you're getting your, like, basic foundation, and then it's not like you're coming in firing, like, I want to be a brain surgeon. No. Like, that day But some one. people have to because of the competitive nature. Like, if you, if you were like, oh, I really want to be a dermatologist. Dermatology is an extremely competitive. Um, it is. Extremely competitive um, uh, uh, type of specialty. And as a result, uh, you really have to kind of be, like, gunning for it from the get-go. Like, you can't have, like, mediocre test scores. Uh, and not have any research experience in that field and expect to get a residency spot in dermatology. Yeah. Neurology is not one of those. Neurology is kind of like in the middle of the field in terms of like level of competitiveness. Okay. So you get, so there at the end of your third year, you kind of decide on neurology and you're heading towards that or you do decide on neurology and then, uh, and then so you do your residency that takes you to Salt Lake City. Correct. Right? Mm -hmm. And so you do a residency and is it a fellowship? Is that what it's called? Yeah, so yeah, residency is um, is a fellowship. No, or, uh, so no. residency is uh, depending on which specialty you're doing is your first three, four, five, six, even seven years for certain uh, specialties. How long was yours? Um, mine was four for four. neurology as standard, um, and then uh, and then I did a fellowship, which is a uh, a subspecialty in neuromuscular medicine. So I was already like a neurologist after I did my four years of residency. And then I did a one year fellowship in neuromuscular medicine, which is disorders of the peripheral nervous yeah. and muscular systems after the nerves leave the spinal cord. Um, uh -huh. And that, that's a one year thing. And then I was, I was done. So now I'm like post all training. Um, what, so what, uh, what happened? Wait, no. I'm supposed to ask you about your residency. You found out about your what residency you got into? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So there's a, there's a process called um, match day where everybody... So um, when you apply to residency, um, it's unlike applying for a job or applying for medical school. Uh -huh. um, everybody's applying for different residencies all at the same time. Yes. And there's actually a computer algorithm. Uh, like so, so I apply to, you know, I apply an interview at like 10 residencies, sure. uh, a school interviews like 100 candidates for certain residency positions, yeah. and I rank all the schools in order from my you know, most preferred to least preferred place, yeah. and they rank all the applicants the same, and then there's an algorithm that matches them all up uh, uh, and spits them all out in a computer program and to decide where everyone is going. So that's how, yeah, exactly, so that's how we get selected. Um, what? Yeah. That kind of takes some of the magic out of it. Yeah, so it's not it's not magic, but I will say it was a it was a um, uh, Nobel Prize winning algorithm. Like yeah, these people, which seems like a weird thing to me. It's like people. It wasn't I, like I me with the, it wasn't me with an Excel spreadsheet. Well, I think yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, like I think of I think of like you know Nobel Prize like uh, winners like you know working on like intensive like literary things or yes, like solving yeah, famine. Yeah. No, this is like about how medical schools match up resident yeah. applicants. Well, it's like the old Seinfeld joke about seedless watermelons. We got it. Oh, He's like, right, yeah. cancer, AIDS, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to work on melons. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so, so the story Sarah is trying to get at is um, uh, because of this algorithm, everybody finds out where they're going simultaneously at the same minute throughout the country what? on the same day called Match Day. Um, uh, because that's the day that the, the algorithm spits out exactly where you're going for the next three, yeah. four, five, six years. Um, Whoa. And so everybody like invites their family and, and, uh, uh, and the farthest You put on away. a hat like you're like a uh, college football lineman? Like <laughs> yeah, what? Exactly. Which, which no. team am I going to? I want to take my talents to Alabama. They, it would actually be funny if they did that, but no, unfortunately they don't. Um, uh, but anyway, so 
uh, so everybody invites their family, and um, the farthest away I had applied for residency was was Salt Lake City. Every place else I applied was like you know Indiana, surrounding states, things like that. <laughs> and so uh, uh, I was kind of excited, but my family was a little bit somber to say the least. Yeah, because you were uh, because that, when they when I opened an envelope and it said that I was moving to Salt Lake City, which was like you know what a 20, 20 hour drive. So. Yeah, it. Speaking, yeah. Well, I don't know. Speaking of geography, we weren't talking about geography, but. Um, <laughs> You can insert something there and make it sound like a segment. <laughs> no, I do very little <laughs> editing. Um, but I, but I, uh, the other day I just was like, I wonder how long it take me to drive out there. And it was like 22 and a half hours. I was like, God. Also, I forgot that it was so south. I think of it as north. It's about the same latitude. It's not that much different, actually. Is it? Yeah. It's mostly because it's uh, 80. Mm-hmm. Goes right into it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, in my head, it's like um, basically Canada. For oh, sure. yeah. No, I don't like know. that. No. no, it's about the same. It's slightly south from here. It's slightly south. Yeah. yeah. Um. But yeah, I remember. Yeah, it's. I always like talking to people about their grad school experience because my mine was just the application process was like, uh, it's so strange. Where like at UT where I went to the Mission Center for Writers, uh, it's very strange because they take, usually they take 12 people a year for a class. And it's uh, four fiction, uh, what, no, it's three fiction writers, four fiction writers, three poets, three playwrights, and two screenwriters. That's it. Three, three, so like the year I applied, I was one of three poets picked. And they, they had um, almost 400 poetry applications. And it's like, so it's very strange. And so I never thought I'd get in. I just lived there and I was like, I'll apply. <laughs> like, <laughs> I <literally, laughs> like uh, and it was, um, and they called me and I was like, for, are you guys for real? Like, you know, because I like, I knew the person who called me. I was like, are you kidding me? Like, because I had applied the guy with the, a few years. Your yeah, tattoo dude, guy? Uh, no, no, it was Lisa Olstein, the other uh, poetry faculty. Um, no, Dean would never make a phone call. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, he still types poems on a typewriter. Um, <laughs> if he sent you a telegram. <laughs> yeah, he would. He would, uh, send me a piece of mail. But, um, yeah, it's just so fascinating because it, it's this moment of like, it's not just like walking up and like, now I'm going to go do this thing. It's like this, yeah, it's, well, for you, it's an algorithm. Or for me, it was like, um, a lot. I had a kind of a non-traditional experience, but like it's the same way you apply to like ten or twelve MFA programs, and you're you sent you work on your portfolio of all your writing and recommendations, and then there's just like a few like few poets sitting around in a room reading your work, and then they just make stacks until they have three. Hmm. That's like how a lot of them do it, and it's just like, well, that's a crapshoot. If they, like if they read yours on a bad day, I and see. they're like. I'm not in the mood for these poems today, right? You know, like, okay. Which I imagine happens. Oh, it happens all the time. Um, um, wait. Can I go to that? Uh, yeah. I, I just want to talk to you about being in Salt Lake City. Uh, so you're there for your residency and your fellowship, and then you finish up, and then at that point, you're like a free agent, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can kind of go, but you decided to stay. That's correct. You got a job. Um, there that we can't talk about earlier. Um, what was kind of behind your decision to stay? Oh, uh, primarily Sarah, you know, girlfriend Sarah, who'll be in next week's episode. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, you know, we were already living together and have a good life there. And yeah, and what wait, what's the vibe in Salt Lake City? Because uh, no, obviously there's always the the Mormon stuff, but like that's. There's got to be more to it than that. Yeah, I would say that the main reason um, people move and decide to live in Salt Lake City is primarily for the the outdoor resources. Yeah. Um, skiing, hiking, mountain biking, trail running. Yeah. Because um, there's very few, like, large-ish cities where you have that close of access to it. Like, for example, like, if you live in Denver, you know, skiing is, like, one and a half to two hours away, depending on like traffic, and there's only one highway that goes to all the ski resorts, things yeah. like that. And um, in Salt Lake City, it's like 
like 30 minutes away, depending on where you live, sometimes even yeah. less. And, um, and Salt Lake City. It's nestled right up against the mountains as opposed to like being a city that's in the vicinity of farther away mountains. And in terms of like, you mentioned Denver, like Denver has gotten to a place I think kind of where Austin is where it's like really expensive now. Yeah. It's really kind of, it was like something like 90 people moving there a day, like crazy. Oh yeah. Like is Salt Lake City starting to catch like that too? They, that's what they say. Um, have you uh, noticed I, I, it? I, I don't know much about the statistics on it. Like have you, how- But as a, as a citizen, have you noticed it? Like, man, traffic is a little more congested <laughs> or like, um, or my my rent went up or whatever. I mean, I've only been there five years, so in my five years, I don't think it's like I don't feel like it's changed significantly. Yeah. Um, but people tell me who have been there, you know, for twenty years, thirty years, that it's very different than it was back then. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so you're, yeah, you feel you feel good there. Though. You're, it feels like a nice fit. Oh yeah, I think it's I think it's a it's a really nice city to live. How in. are the winners? Um, inside the city limits, it's actually pretty similar to here in terms of like temperature and snowfall. So it gets pretty cold. It gets fairly cold. Yeah. Like, uh, inside the city limits. Yeah. I think it's actually, I looked up the statistics once. It's actually like on average, like two to five degrees, like warmer there per day than here. Okay. Um, but, uh, but everything changes when you drive 30 to, you know, 30 to 60 minutes and go into the mountains, then it's a completely different, like atmosphere like uh, r- like rougher like yeah like rougher like in the winter like you, you know they'll have up. snow there all year right because they have yeah, ski yeah, resorts yeah. and everything so so do you is the is skiing and stuff like the snow sports is that more like a fall spring thing than a winter is it too rough during the winter no it's like winter spring you got to wait for enough snow to fall so like most people will start skiing and snowshoeing and um fat oh, bike. snowshoeing yeah Cross-country skiing, all those things, probably in like... Did mid- you say fat bike? Fat bikes, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's what they call it when I ride a bike. <laughs> uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, but I saw a guy on one of those the other day at a disc golf course. I, yeah? We were disc golfing in the snow, and he had They're that thing. Cool. He had that thing geared, like, on, like, first gear, and so he was just pedaling really fast. And yeah, bar- the gears are really small. He's, like, small. barely moving. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You got I, bought, one I bought one this last summer. So you I like it? I do like it a lot, yeah. Nice. It, for me, it doubles as, a, as like a summer mountain bike, so I haven't used it in the snow yet. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. Well, so something that you and I talk about a lot is, uh, you know, like you come from like a, the medical side and I'm thinking from like the experiential side of like mental health and mental illness. And so we kind of talk about that. So um, is there a link between like what you do with neurology and psychiatry, like you guys often, like I'll have this patient for you, like that kind of, that kind of stuff, or is, yeah, what's the link between neurology and psycho, uh, psychology and psychiatry? Um, yeah, so a lot of that is, um, in a way, it's probably a lot his, um, historical, mm-hmm. in the sense that. You know, every decade, every like hundred years that we learn more and more about the brain, more psychology or psychiatry will get enveloped into neurology because we'll understand the mechanisms behind like why people think the way they do, yes. why people have the symptoms the way they have. Um, and, and an example of that is um, uh, there are a lot of people out there who have symptoms that like 50 years ago would have been ascribed to something like schizophrenia yep um that now through testing through certain mris through blood testing through spinal fluid testing other things like that will prove are like an autoimmune response um to something like uh, limbic encephalitis like if you've read something like um brain on fire um is like what's a popular book a few years ago yep um uh, those types of disorders, um, you know, before we had all this testing, those people would have just been lumped into this category of having a psychiatric disease that we don't understand well, um, yep. which, which we don't for the vast majority of people. And that's, that's all still true. Yes. Um, but you know, every, like I said, decade or a hundred years will inch probably closer to having an, um, uh, like a mechanistic understanding of why patients have the symptoms that they have and potentially, uh, therefore how to intervene on them. With treatments. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. We we talked we've talked about that before about how, especially yeah, when you can when you start to understand like this fires 
this part of the brain fires when this part of the reaction. Well, because I've been thinking about that a lot lately with, um, I've been getting into meditation and we've talked about, you said you had some interest in meditation. Uh, we can talk about that, but uh, I mentioned you last night, we were talking about how, like, I do Sam Harris's Waking Up app and he's a neuroscientist and I'm reading this book called Buddhist Brain that's all about the way, it's like the, the neuroscience behind Buddhism and the way the brain functions in meditation and enchanting and, and and all that kind of stuff um and so yeah and it's kind of like when you meditate this is the these are the parts of the brain that fire and so you're seeing yeah we're being able to understand like what's actually happening inside the dome while whatever's happening out the the manifestation of that on the outside right the mm-hmm. psychotic symptoms or the meditative calm that we see we're, we're getting to kind of learn what that's finally like. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's been really fascinating me. I do wonder, scientifically, it's great. I wonder if, like, experientially, if I'm ruining meditation for myself, learning so much about Uh-oh. what's happening. I'm, like, seeing the man behind the curtain. Yeah. You know? Except it's the man that doesn't quite understand how it works still. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, but there's still it's a, a man lot. with, like, half the answers. <laughs> but there's still a lot. Like, there's still a lot to learn. You can still learn, like... I'm learning through these books, I'm learning like the parts of the brain and these are the ones that cause emotional responses and these are, um, and so, yes, I wonder, I wonder too if sometimes it's like, if I'm going to ruin it for myself, like sometimes I, it's like, uh, my ex-wife Diana had, it was hard to watch, to go to plays with her Mm because she was such a, a skilled and studied playwright that she was just like, why they do the why that choice and you know she could see it all mm-hmm. and so seeing all of it sometimes I'm like or a lot of it half of it like you say I'm like I don't know but have you been exploring meditation at all no it's something I've I've aspired to do um but just haven't made time in my own personal life yet for it oh it's a time it's not like a scientific like, no yeah you're no. not like no, I, I would like to for yeah. scientific reasons. I mean, not scientific reasons, like for the purpose of my own investigation, but like um, I, I think there's some uh, validity. There is some. Yeah. Oh, there's absolutely validity to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you? Uh, are you able to like tell patients like try meditation? Oh yeah, and we yeah. actually we depending on like you know what patients' issues are and what their symptoms are and and kind of we also. Um, uh, try to perform when best we can what's called like shared decision making right like so we yes. we take patients you know um, philosophical and religious beliefs to the best that we can understand them in the short amount of time we have to spend with a patient yeah. uh, into account when we decide like you know what, what, what's really the best treatment options for you yeah um, and so for patients who who are into that kind of thing or have any kind of interest in it um, we we often always um, encourage that especially when it comes to managing pain um uh, yeah. there's there's a lot of research in that now and and the uh, uh the pain management group where i work um is is really into uh, an integrative approach to that type of thing so what well, yeah is acupuncture part yeah, of the approach absolutely yeah acupuncture um different types of uh uh massage um oh, cool. other types of I've other never types done of work acupuncture have you have uh no i've never actually done acupuncture it, I'm not gonna lie, it kind of freaked me out a little bit. Oh, really? I'm I'm down. I believe in the validity of it. I I see it. I know yeah. what. There's something about it. Just like I don't know if I can deal with that. <laughs> yeah, I I also I, uh... don't like massages. Oh, okay. Either. Well, so I don't like that kind of like touching, which is strange for someone. Who, one of my symptoms of bipolar is hypersexuality. So, <laughs> like, I don't have a lot of boundaries. Um, but I do with that. Um. Yeah, so you mentioned there like you mentioned like research a couple of times, but then earlier you said like you're um, you wanted to be like in the practice, like the clinician part of it. Uh, what do you think drew you to that uh, to that side, the clinician part over the research part? Um, it's the same things that honestly drove me toward doing medicine as opposed to engineering in the first place, which is that. I don't know if it's something about like my personality style or what, but like I'm I'm not drawn towards like long term projects and long term goals. Like I do better, and I feel like I have more of like a sense of purpose every day. If I like, I like the fact that like I wake up, you know, 
I'm on vacation right now, but like a week from now, right? I'm going to wake up and in the morning I'm going to say, oh, sh oh, you know, I have like 10 patients I need to see today. Yeah. And like this, these are things I need to see them for. And these are my like short term goals for the day, as opposed to like having one project that you work on, you know, like if I stayed in engineering, I might work on, uh, you know, some certain like technical aspect of well, like some part. we mentioned Cody, like uh, he's like working on an engine for right. the next years, year, RAM two years. or whatever, and then like, and then you cross your fingers and you you hope that that'll make it to market, right, and that'll actually like see the light of day. Yeah. Versus like I like the idea of the immediacy of like I'm seeing you today, I'm like helping you with your problem today, yeah. I'm coming up with a plan with you today, and we're going to enact that today. Yeah. Well, you're helping me a lot. Well, yeah. I, um, that, no, you I, are. I meant the, you are. You I, are. I meant the theoretical you as in my am patient. I, am I going to get a bill? Tyler Gobble is <laughs> not my patient. No. <laughs> um, uh, no, but well, I just think of it too as like you're you're not necessarily looking for a product, creating a product. You're like have you're you're it's more experiential, both for you and the patient. Like there's an outcome, like there's a goal, but there's not like a pro like like a product in the sense of a cure or a paper or a, or like a theory. Right. Is less like it feels more organic. I wonder if too, if it's related to seeing your parents the way they were like, they're like, they're in the same boat. Yeah. They're, they're clinicians. Yeah. They're, they're, they're eye doctors. They they're see there every, every day. day. They're jumping in and like, I, and I love their energy. Like, especially your dad's at the, <laughs> at the office when I'm there, you know, and, um, I love it, and so I wonder if that was part of it. Is that's kind of how you what you grew up around as well? Yeah, your, that, I think that your makes sense. Your sisters who are optometrists are the same way. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, yeah, well, that's let's see. Okay, I well, I was just thinking about okay, a couple last things. How has has COVID been as a doc? Like, so you so basically you start this new. Well, you were finishing up your fellowship, and then you started this new job in the middle of COVID, mm -hmm. in the middle of the pandemic. How is it, both like from like a practical day-to-day -day standpoint, how has it affected it, but also just from like your approach to medicine in general, how has it affected? Um, uh, you know, COVID's been awful for a whole lot of reasons. Of course. Um, uh, and at the very beginning, you know, like, took our ability to take care of patients to like a grounding halt, right? Like one week we were seeing patients like normal and the next week we had like a whole, you know, a hunt, like personally, like I probably had like 50 patients I had to see in a given week. And like suddenly we said, oh yeah, sorry, we can't see you now. COVID happened, sorry. You know, yeah, yeah. You'll, you'll have to take your business, you know, elsewhere or just put your medical problems on hold. Yes. Um, so depending uh, on the problem, Right. Right. Yeah. Because because at the time I, I wasn't doing much much inpatient work, seeing patients in the hospital. That kind of business um, or you know ability to take care of patients like kept going on more or less as normal. Um, uh, but seeing patients in the clinic like just like came to a screeching halt for a few weeks. Um, uh, the the silver lining over all of this is that you know as doctors and depending on the on, on the specialty that you're in, um, a lot of the care we can take care of. For patients um, uh, can be done virtually uh, nearly as well as it can be done in yes, person. Yes. And uh, as a result, like the practice styles and changes of all these different medical systems um, now allow for that a lot more easily. Okay. So like it's never going to, like your medical care um, is probably never going to go completely back to the way that it used to be because, you know, a year ago, five years ago, for nearly all types of medical care, you had to be seen in person. Um, and yes. especially in a place where we live, like in Utah, people live like hours and hours away from any type of doctor. Like they live like yeah. way out in the middle of nowhere. Not like in Indiana, where like every town is like spaced apart by like 10 minutes apart. Yeah, and, like, the, and there's like, you have your Anderson and your Kokomo that have hospitals, you know. Right, yeah, they all, they all have You're like, like 30 minutes away. Right, like yeah. in, in, uh, in Utah, like a town the size of Elwood, Indiana, you know, like what, 8,000 or so yep. people? would never have a, a hospital. And so the nearest hospital to you would be like three hours away, which would be Salt Lake City. Um, and so you would have to drive there for any type of medical appointment, whether it's in the snow or whatever. And if you don't show up, you don't get medical treatment. Um, and so now that landscape has completely changed and chances are um, going forward, we're gonna continue to have like 
much easier access to virtual care, um, which yeah. isn't, depending on your specialty and depending on your, the patient's symptoms, isn't as good as an in-person exam where, or in-person visit where we can examine the patient like physically yeah. and talk to them. And, and sure, sometimes you have technical issues, but it's far superior to not having any care at all. So it's actually, um, it's, uh, um, COVID's been terrible, but it's a great silver lining in that this, this change is fortunately probably not gonna go away. Yeah. That's a hopeful way to look at it is like the adjustments we've had to make in the lessons we've learned, how they can better our lives in general. I, I think about that in a lot of ways. Like um, I even just simple things like going to the grocery store. I know a lot of people like used to just like every couple of days they'd go by and just pick up $20 worth of stuff yep. where now it's like every two weeks I'm going to go right. like that. To try to reduce your exposure. But that, that also just like reduces your exposure to a lot of other things it makes you meal plan better it makes you uh it, less times in the car for accidents less pollution it's just like all those little things are like oh maybe that actually is a better smarter way to do it yeah. you know but certainly with the technology you know from my side of things like um i don't ever want to go back to i was talking to you this last night to in-person therapy oh right yeah i, I don't want to go back where like you get to sit in a little room. Yeah, in the waiting room, and then you got to sign in, and then and you sit like, in a different little room, and, they're like, and then you, you wait. They're like, you can either sit on this end of the couch or that end of the couch. <laughs> and, and it's like, great, a lot of options. And well, I made the joke last night, I was like, and there's a little bubbly brook, and like Inya's playing in the background, <laughs> and like uh, there's there's a monk chanting or something, and you're like, what? And there's always some poster that's like not as helpful as it thinks it is. And it's just like, if you just breathe, everything will be fine. And it's like, <laughs> no. <laughs> and um, we're like, uh, my dream with therapy, I, th I was telling you this, my dream with therapy is like, I want to be a therapist and I want to like, be like, oh, you're worried about, one of the things to stress you out is not having enough time in the day to do your chores. Well, br bring your laundry and I have a washer and dryer at my therapy office and we can do laundry and I'll help you fold. <laughs> you know, like. I just think that would be so much better, but like uh, virtual appointments kind of let you do that. I cooked dinner w one time while I was having a therapy appointment. You know, I was just cooking and talking, and, and I actually did better. I opened up more because I was relaxed. And, That's cool. Um, yeah, so I think those adjustments are good. Um, great. Um, yeah. Oh, so, so I do want to put one thing to rest, speaking of science. Uh-oh. Yeah, I'm sure whatever your question is, we're going to put it to rest. I'm going to give you the answer. No, I'm going to give you the answer. Oh, okay. Sorry. So okay. I've been accused for many years that you, that I put a Jewel CD in your car <laughs> because I got lumped in because I liked Alanis Morissette and some other things. And you assumed that... Someone, for some reason, put a Jewel CD in your car. Mm -hmm. Do you remember this? Yes, I remember. And you were convinced, and maybe still are convinced, that it was me. <laughs> yes, I was. Playing the world's worst prank. That is not a prank I would play. <laughs> if I wanted to play a prank, I would scratch your car with Jewel CD. <laughs> that would be my prank. But I would not do that. It was not me. Okay. <laughs> but here's the thing. Who was it? I don't know. I think it was. I think it I think one of your sisters borrowed your car and left it in there. I don't know. Sounds like something you'd do. Okay, okay. Well, it wasn't me. And you okay. like that music more than I did anyways. That's you true. You probably I, love I, that Jewel CD. I, I, I didn't have any issues with it. Uh, <laughs> uh, all right. Can we have a gratitude moment? Sure. Something we're both grateful for. Now you're coming with something new. Um, do you want to go first? You want me to? Um, uh, I'll go first. I'm glad to be back in my hometown for a week. Yeah. It feels, feels nice. It does feel nice, yeah. huh? Are the lights still up downtown? They are. Nice. Um, that feels good. Yeah, we're recording this the week after Christmas. Um, yeah. I'm glad, I'm grateful you're back too, and I'm grateful that you bring Sarah with you and brought Sarah with you. Um, I think it's, I think that's one of the most exciting things about having friends is the other things they bring into to your, like bringing in partners or bringing in like knowledge. Like I've learned so much about the brain and all that stuff from talking to you. And uh, so I'm just really thankful for like uh, 
that you visit. A lot of people don't visit, you know, but you make it a point. This is the second thing. This is COVID year and you've been here twice. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's cool. You know, we've been trying to do our little mask. We're just sitting apart now, you know. Yeah, last time we had to quarantine for a week. It was a real pain. Making it work. Yeah. So I'm grateful for y'all making it work and being here. And for doing the podcast. I know it's not the most comfortable thing for you. And you did it. Uh, it wasn't so it. bad, was it? No, it was fine. All right. Well, thank you. Any last things you want to say? No, I'm, I'm good. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks. Clark Moser, everyone. Here's the time for gratitude. Thank you to Landon Caldwell slash Creeping Pink for the use of his song uh, Free Yourself to start off this podcast each and every episode. Thank you to my Patreon supporters, um, Enrique Lozano and Paz Pardo, Terry Tan and Billy Burkert, uh, Josh Caldwell, Heather Collier, and uh, Morgan Jackman and family. Um, I appreciate your support of all my work through being a Patreon supporter. Um, if anyone else would like to be a Patreon supporter, it's patreon.com slash yourbuddytgob. And thank you to all of y'all for listening. Please subscribe.